This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 14. Genesis 14, and we will be looking at the entire chapter. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. And it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Keterleomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these joined together in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they served Keterleomer, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Keterleomer and the kings that were with him came and attacked the Rephaim and Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim and Ham, the Emim and Shaveh Kirithaim, and the Horites in the mountain of Seir, as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and attacked all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who dwelt in Hazelon Tamar. And the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and joined together in the valley of Sidim against Keterleomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of nations, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of asphalt pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell there, and the remainder fled to the mountains. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods, and departed. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol, and brother of Anir, and they were allies with Abram. Now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the people. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Keterleomer and the kings who were with him. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, 
Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich, except only what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who went with me, Anir, Eskal, and Mamre, let them take their portion. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless it in our hearing. You may be seated. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word, I pray that you would illuminate our hearts and prepare them by your spirit to receive it, that we would understand what it has to teach us, that we would understand not only the history and not only your provision for Abram, but also may we see in this passage our Lord Jesus Christ, who is presented here in types and shadows, that we might come to his table and partake of him by faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last time we looked at the separation between Abram and Lot, in which Lot, for various reasons, most of them seeming to be pragmatic and economic, uh, separated from Abram and chose to dwell in the land of the Jordan Plain around the Dead Sea. While this would be good for his living as far as making money and having material resources, it was a move towards spiritual poverty. Because Lot was going towards Sodom. Now Sodom was a land, even already at this point, before it was to be destroyed, was known as a land of sin and wickedness, of rebellion against God. It did not take very long for trouble to come for Lot once he goes to Sodom. Warfare and violence sweep through the whole land. And not only will Lot get caught up in the geopolitical conflict, but Abram and his camp will also be involved in their own way. And so we will look at this chapter today, this account, in four points. First, we see the battle in verses 1 through 12. We see these various kings of various lands surrounding coming to conflict with one another and Lot being caught up in the conflict. Second, we see brotherhood in verses 13 through 17. Though Lot and Abram had previously separated, Abram will intervene to rescue Lot from this situation that he is in. Third, we see blessings in verses 18 through 21. A mysterious figure will visit Abram and bless him and feast with him. And then fourth, we see belief in verses 22 through 24. How does Abram respond in light of his success and his blessings? So again, we have battle, brotherhood, blessings, and belief. So first we look at the battle in verses 1 through 12. I mentioned last time that one of the concerns that would have led to Abram and Lot needing to separate was a concern over security. Back in chapter 13, verse 7, There was a reminder that the Canaanites and the Perizzites dwelt in the land. Though Abram had been promised the land, he did not yet possess it. There were other peoples, other nations, other tribes of people who owned and ruled the land. 
with Abram and Lot being nomads, living in tents, traveling around, looking for whatever lived and grew in the wild, they were a big target. They were vulnerable to attack. They were also vulnerable to famines and shortages and other concerns. All of this leading to them to go their separate ways. But we see at the opening of chapter 14 that concerns over security, concerns over the Canaanites and Perizzites were not just an abstract fear or an abstract concern. There was good reason for them. As we learn that there is a tense situation, a situation of warfare between the various kings and tribes of the area. Now, the time of Abram, this time of history we were looking at, it was before the time of empires. It was before these large unified nations were being formed. What instead is seen here, the picture we get of the land of Canaan in chapter 14, is more of the division of the land into city-states. Small nations, essentially each city and its surrounding lands being ruled and governed by its own king. Now this does not mean that conquest and centralization of power didn't happen at all. It was just gone about a little differently in this time in history. And we will see how. So in these opening verses, we see this incursion of Keterleomer, the king of Elam, and other kings who are allied with him. Of the first group of kings, Keterleomer, along with Amraphel, Arioch, and Tidal, they all seem to generally come from the northeast, from the land of Mesopotamia. And it seems that of the group, Keterleomer is the boss. He's the big dog. He's the one who seems to be running the show. We also see that these allied kings with Keterleomer, they make war with some of the kings of these city-states of Canaan, particularly this area around the Dead Sea, which is where Lot went, the southern plain of the Jordan. We see specifically Bera, the king of Sodom, Bersha, the king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemaber, king of Zeboim, and an unnamed king of Bela, or Zoar. Now remember, this is not an area known for any kind of piety or worship of God. Again, Sodom was already known as an area of great wickedness. We will learn later that more of that area is as well. So these northern kings invade and they essentially conquer and subjugate these city-states of the Jordan Plain. Now I mentioned before that this was not an exercise so much in empire building where you take over a nation and completely dismantle it and make it part of your own. The way that conquest usually worked in this time in history is that when a rival nation was defeated, it wouldn't be completely removed or destroyed or absorbed into the conquering nation. It would be more or less left intact. It would even still have its own king and government, but it would become what was known as a vassal state. So the great king, the conquering king, in this case it would have been Keterleomer, he was known as the suzerain. He was basically a king of kings. And the conquered kings basically worked for him. They were his vassals. While they still could rule over their local areas, they worked for the suzerain. They were responsible to pay him tribute and govern in the way that he wanted done. So one of the forms that this took is these vassal states, they would be heavily taxed by the suzerain. They would have to pay lots of gold, lots of tribute to the conquering king. And if they didn't, he would come back to put them down again. 
So we see that after this initial conquest, the allied kings of the Jordan, they are these vassals, they serve Keterleomer for 12 years. So it seems that perhaps some time passes between when Abram and Lot separate to the events described here. But as is often the case among these vassal kings, they get tired of paying tribute and eventually they decide they have enough of Keterleomer and his rule, and so they rebel. Now, needless to say, Keterleomer and his friends, they're not just going to give up that easily. In verse 5, we see that they retaliate. They come and they strike many of the surrounding areas. It seems that this rebellion was broader than just the Jordan plain. In fact, these areas that are described as being conquered in verses 5 through 7 were further to the east, beyond the Jordan, beyond the Dead Sea, beyond the lands where Lot had gone to settle. But they weren't done conquering those areas. Keterleomer and his armies, they also confronted the rebellious kings of the plain in battle at the Valley of Sidim in verse 8. We see that the same five kingdoms are making war against the same four as they did previously. We see a resounding defeat for the cities of the plain. Now in verse 10, we see that the valley in which they fought was full of tar pits, full of pits of asphalt. This is the Middle East, which of course has lots of oil, and some of that oil comes up to the surface in the form of this tar. Now there is some confusion, there is some dispute as to what the text describes going on with these tar pits. Some think that the armies of the plain fell into those tar pits and died there. Others think that they hid in them so that they were not seen and so they could escape. But either way, the armies of the plain were soundly defeated, and we see that the armies of Sodom and Gomorrah specifically are defeated, and that all the goods and all the people of those cities were taken into captivity. Now among those taken was Lot, Abram's nephew. We see that in verse 12. We see that by this point, Lot not only dwelt near Sodom, as was described before, but it seems now that he actually dwells in Sodom. He is now a part of this wicked city. He's a resident. He is a citizen of it. At least he was until Keterleomer took him and his into captivity. And this brings us to our second point. After the battle, we come to brotherhood in verses 13 through 17. Someone, we don't know who, escapes from the battle and comes to Abram, then still dwelling at this place called Mamre. Now it seems that Abram, despite getting an inferior land as far as the economic terms and the criteria we talked about last time, he has found allies. He has made friends where he lived. This Mamre, who was an Amorite of some rank, who also had brothers, Eskal and Aner, and it seems they had between them an alliance, a sort of mutual defense agreement, that if they were attacked, if they were threatened, they would go to war together. So in verse 14, Abram is told that his brother, we see interchangeably here the term brother or brother's son, because Lot was biologically Abram's nephew, but he essentially functioned as a brother, being the son of Abram's deceased brother. So we see that Lot has been taken into captivity. Abram is told of this, and so he takes up arms. He is ready to go fight to free Lot. We see that Abram had 318 men at his disposal. 
It seems like that is the combined forces between him and these Amorites, as we find out later, they were all fighting together. This is not a huge army. But for all the other things that we learn about Abram in the account of his life, he apparently was a competent military tactician. Because he takes this relatively small force, and he pursues Keterleomer's forces as far as Dan. Now this is a long pursuit. Abram dwelt near Hebron, which was in the southern part of Canaan. Dan is up in the far northern parts. So Abram goes after them for quite a distance. And when Abram catches up with them, he allocates his small fighting force in a way to be most effective. He divides them up and he sneak attacks at night. And they win. They are given the victory over Keterleomer and his allied kings and they press them out of the land, even further to the north past Damascus. So Abram had a good strategy when you're outnumbered you can gain an advantage by surprise. If you attack at night, you can persuade your enemy that there is more of you than they think and that you're stronger than you actually are. Of course, ultimately, Abram doesn't prevail because of his great tactics, so they are decent tactics, but he prevails because God is on his side, is interested in preserving his people, even as Lot has uh, in many ways, landed in this situation because of his own folly. So Abram and his forces, they prevail completely over the rival kings. They free Lot and all the other prisoners and all the other property from Sodom, and they bring it back. And then in verse 17, we see that the king of Sodom, who survived his own defeat, comes out and meets Abram at the valley of Shaveh, or the king's valley. Now, what should not be lost on us here is that the king of Sodom was a wicked leader of a wicked people in a wicked city. But we also see that he was not able to prevail in the battle. He was not able to deliver. God was not on his side. Yet Abram, a man of God, even with limited troops and resources, is able to deliver these people deliver this city, even if it is done just for the sake of Lot, the one righteous man among all of them. So on the one hand, you see God's blessing of Abram, his presence and power in him. But what we're also seeing here is that this is not just any city that's being delivered. It is the deliverance of Sodom for a time. Now this should have served as a warning for Sodom. They've been conquered, they've been overrun, Maybe it's time to reevaluate some things. Of course, that will not be the case. God is not on their side. Eventually, they will be ultimately destroyed. But for now, through Abram, God is bringing a certain measure of preservation and mercy even towards Sodom. So the king of Sodom comes in verse 17 to meet Abram in the valley. But there is also another king who comes to meet Abram. And this brings us to our next point. After the battle and brotherhood, we come to blessings in verses 18 through 20. It is here we are introduced to one of the most mysterious and fascinating figures in the whole Bible, Melchizedek. Even here, this is the only time in a biblical narrative he appears, though he's commented on in Psalms and Hebrews, 
there's not a lot told about him. We do see some details. First, we see he is the king of Salem. There's a couple possibilities as to what this means, and they're not mutually exclusive. Salem means peace. In Hebrew, it's very similar to the word for shalom. But Salem is also as a place believed to be the city that would later become Jerusalem. You'll notice that the names are quite similar. The word Salem is embedded in the word Jerusalem. Now we also see that this Melchizedek brings bread and wine. Now isn't that just fascinating? We also read that he is a priest of God Most High. He is a king, but he is also a priest. He is a worshiper. He is a servant of the true God. And we see that he blesses Abram with words at the end of verse 19 and the beginning of verse 20, acknowledging that God Most High is the possessor, the owner of all things, and that God has given Abram the victory. And then fifth, we see that Abram gives a tithe, a tenth of all the spoils of the battle to this Melchizedek. Now we have another passage in Scripture that helps to uh, helps us to figure out some more about Melchizedek. So hold your place in Genesis 14. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 6. I'll start in verse 19 of Hebrews 6, and I will read through chapter 7, verse 10, where we see what the author of the Hebrews has to tell us about Melchizedek. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils, and indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi who receive the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witness that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. So what do we do with all of this? Well, the author of Hebrews identifies something unique to Melchizedek that is to be identified with the priestly work of Jesus Christ. This Melchizedek is a priest of unknown origins. We read that he doesn't have a genealogy. We don't have a beginning or ending of days. Now, I don't think this means that Melchizedek 
wasn't human, that he wasn't born or that he didn't die. But it's just this isn't recorded for us because he is to show us a figure of one who does not come from natural origin. Which is, of course, to point us to Christ. And this Melchizedek has a priesthood greater than that of Levi, the priesthood that comes under the Mosaic ceremonial law. We see in Melchizedek one whose priesthood outranks Abraham. Abraham would be the father of all of Israel, including all of the tribe of Levi, of which all the priests would come. This is a greater priesthood, a priesthood greater than anything that we see in the Old Covenants. Greater than the priesthood that offered worship to God through these sacrifices and ceremonies of the Mosaic Law. A priesthood before and greater, and after that, a priesthood of which Jesus himself is a part. Jesus is part of Melchizedek's priesthood, not Levi's. Levi's priesthood was temporary. It was provisional. It passed away with the coming of Christ. But Christ's priesthood continues forever. So what we have then in Melchizedek is a clear and powerful type of Christ who is to come. We don't know from what we're told in the text who his parents are. Again, I would say he was a real person. He really was the king of Jerusalem, but we don't know who they are. We don't know where he came from. We don't know how long he was king. None of that is recorded for us. Now, we've been working through the Gospel of John, and we have been in chapter 7, and we've been talking a lot, we've been seeing a lot of the disputes among the scribes and Pharisees, the leaders of the Jews, over Jesus' origin. They want to attribute earthly origin to Jesus. They're like, we know who his parents is, we know where he came from, but they're wrong. Jesus' origin was divine. The priests of Levi, their origin was known. They were descendant of fallen, sinful man. They were descendant of Levi, who was not one of the most pious of the sons of Jacob. The priests of Levi, they brought bloody sacrifices. They brought animals, bulls, goats, and so forth as signs of the atonement for sins. But there had to be all this killing and shedding of blood. What about the Melchizedek priesthood? Melchizedek himself and the fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ, they bring bread and wine, unbloody signs and seals of the covenant of grace, directing people to Christ's once for all perfect sacrifice, which put an end to the shedding of blood for sins. Now, just as a quick aside, we also see here in this exchange between Abram and Melchizedek, we see tithing as something that predates the Mosaic economy, a tithing that is something higher and lasts longer than that. But all of this to say, though, Melchizedek, though a real person that Abram really interacted with, he is presented here in a way to particularly point us to something greater and to point Abram to something greater, which is the priestly work and intercession of Jesus Christ. Now, this is, of course, important to reflect upon as today we are going to partake of the Lord's Supper. Itself, the bread and wine that our greater Melchizedek priest of eternal origin and office and reign gave us to do in remembrance of him. 
in commemoration of his priestly work. He offered himself as a once for all perfect sacrifice. And now he is no longer with us in body, but seated at the right hand of the Father, where he makes intercession for us. And by his spirit, he invites us there to commune with him. So Melchizedek is a priest king that prophetically points us to the great and eternal prophet, priest, and king, Jesus Christ. But there's still this other king that needs to be dealt with. And so this brings us to our final point. After the battle, brotherhood, and blessing, we come to belief in verses 21 through 23. Remember that the king of Sodom had also come to the valley to meet Abram. While Melchizedek's appearance and interactions are of deeply spiritual significance, pointing in every way to the true God and His work, and to the Lord Jesus Christ who was to come, the king of Sodom's interest and focus is quite different. Specifically, the king of Sodom is there to talk business. He is about the issues of his earthly kingdom. So he makes a proposal to Abram. Now, in a certain sense, Abram was the conquering king. He had a legitimate claim to everyone and everything there. He could have set himself up as the new king of the plain. He had prevailed against their enemies. There was very little that anyone or that anyone else could or would do about it. So the king of Sodom, recognizing his disadvantaged position, he proposes a compromise. Basically, he says, give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. Let the people of Sodom come back home and I'll still be their king, but you can have all their stuff. You can have all their money. You can have all the plunder of the battle. But Abram reveals a different set of priorities. He doesn't just respond, he responds solemnly. He responds with an oath in the name of God that he will not take anything of Sodom's spoil. He will only take the portion for the Amorites who joined him, Honor, Eskel, and Mamre. He'll take their fair share for payments, but he won't keep any of it for himself. And then also what the young men have eaten. In other words, what did it actually cost them? What did they actually use to fight this battle? Why? Because Abram will not be enriched by the king of Sodom. Sodom is a wicked land in its rebellion against God and Abram, trusting in the Lord to provide all that he needs, having just communed with the Lord by types and shadows through this priest king Melchizedek. Abram will not allow himself to be corrupted or influenced by the king of Sodom or his money. Now, there are many applications we could make here. What we see here in Abram is a man very confident in God's provision for him. Because of this confidence, he does not need to resort to worldly means for his provision. He has already been blessed and enriched by God's hand, such that any attempt to be blessed or enriched by others would seem disloyal. It would seem treasonous. There are many ways we could apply this in our world today as the church and as Christians. The world around us is always trying to offer us its things, its wealth, 
its influence, its fame, its platforms, all the things that the world has to offer. But they always come with a price. The world's offer is usually something along the lines of, we'll give you all this stuff, we'll let you be rich, we'll let you be famous, we'll let you have influence. You just have to back off on some of those things your Bible teaches. You know, the big issues of our day, things like sex and the sanctity of life and many other things we could draw on. And sadly, many take the bait. They think, okay, fine, we'll... We'll back off just enough so that we can remain in the world's favor. But what Abram is doing here is he's offering us an example. He's offering us a better way. He is unwilling to be enriched by such compromise. He's unwilling to be enriched by those who oppose and rebel against God. He's unwilling to be enriched in a way that detracts from God's truth or God's glory. And so if we as God's people succeed, may it be said of us that we succeeded by God's hand and because of his faithfulness and because of his truth, not by our own hands, not by the world and its ways, but only because of him. But we also should look at Abram's response to the king of Sodom in light of his interaction with the other king, the priest king, Melchizedek. Abram has this confidence because although he has only known through types and shadows, Abram knows Jesus Christ. Melchizedek, this priest king, brought him God's blessing, brought him bread and wine. And Abram responds to this gospel reality in joyful thankfulness and gratitude and seeking to glorify his God. As we are about to partake, the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper, the bread and wine given to us by our prophet and priest and king, we do so because God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Most of all, he has accomplished our redemption and salvation through Jesus Christ, who being the eternal Son of God, took on the form of a humble human servant. He obeyed the law perfectly on our behalf. And he died the cursed death of the cross we deserved. He fulfilled all righteousness, that righteousness which is imputed to us in our justification. But before Jesus suffered that cursed death, he gave his disciples, he gave his people this sign of bread and wine by which they might remember and partake and proclaim his death until he comes again. Once he was raised from the dead, he was ascended into heaven. Now he is seated at the right hand of God where he invites us to meet him and to feast with him. And in this sacrament, those who are his, those who have faith worked in them by the Holy Spirit, are nourished to everlasting life. That was Abram's hope, Abram's confidence, and Abram's Christ. May he also be ours today. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word that we have heard. Even as we see in it these accounts of battles in history, we also see prefigured for us in a powerful way 
the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is our prophet and priest and king forever. He, his body was broken and his blood was shed on our behalf. And he has given us this bread and wine that we might proclaim his death until he comes again. And so I pray that we would receive this supper, that we would do so worthily, that we would do so by faith, with this word going before us and written on our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.